Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the BritFlix.com podcast. I'm Stuart Wright, and today I've got with me Tom Caravan. Hello, Tom. Hi, Stuart. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. I'm doing very well. Um, do you want to tell us the name of the film we've, we've, uh, we've got together this morning to talk about? Yeah, so the film is currently called Tear Me Apart. Uh, okay. It's a romantic horror thriller. I say currently because we are um, debating changing the title. I was going to say, so while, you're, while, you're, while you say you're in that kind of sort of transitional period what 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 actually what point are you at with the film at the moment so we shot it in june and we are now about halfway through post production okay okay right so um if you give us a brief synopsis of what the film is yeah sure so as i said it's a romantic horror thriller uh the basic kind of story is these uh these these two brothers um live uh, live um uh, live on a beach in Cornwall, and essentially 12 years ago, all the women started mysteriously dying out. So it's kind of a post-apocalyptic film. Okay. And the men warred themselves into almost non-existence. So we, we focus on one little pocket of this world, 12 years later, where these two brothers, they're struggling to survive, um, and they turn to cannibalism. And then they end up meeting, or they end up falling for their prey, who's this teenage girl, and she is the last girl left alive. So the hook, if you like, is kind of what's more, uh, what's more primal, love or survival or lust. So it's that kind of, you know, imagine you're a 16-year-old boy, you've never, seen a, you've never seen a girl before in your life, you eat people to survive, and then you see a girl for the first time, what are you going to do? Um, so as I say, yeah, post-apocalyptic romance, horror, a bit of thriller in there as well. Sounds like, eat, sounds like eating human beings is how you, how you grow your hormones before you start to realise what you're meant to do with them. <laughs> um, sorry there, I, was, uh, I went too far with the imagining the scenario. Um, so, um, you're the writer-producer on this. Yes, I am. So, do you want to give us a brief, uh, like, what, how the team come together that put you in the position of writer and producer and everybody else that's involved with the film? Yeah, sure. So um, about three years ago at the London Screenwriters Festival, Mm -hmm. I met a chap called Alex Lightman, um, who is the director on the film. And we started working together um, on kind of little shorts and stuff like that. Actually, we we came to make a short with with some producers who we met at uh, the Gorilla Filmmakers Masterclass, so kind of um, another Chris Jones event. Mm. Um, And it was on one of these short films that we met a chap called Ernesto Herman, who was the cinematographer. Yeah. And we sort of formed kind of the, the, the sort of a core team. We worked really well together. So we spent a couple of years, music videos, short films, adverts. And then we had uh, kind of, we, weren't, we were sort of producing these, but we had features in development with other producers, which, so we were never planning to produce a feature film ourselves. We just wanted yeah. to be 
the creative team. And then one reason or another, you know, the, the money didn't kind of come through. And so we sort of won, um, I think it was a, a May bank holiday Monday, we were sort of hung over discussing it. And we sort of went, well, why don't we do it ourselves? Surely between the three of us, we must you know, amount to one kind of competent producer. Um, how hard can it be to raise, you know, a little bit of money and go and make a feature film? Yeah. So with a sort of um, heady mix of kind of, you know, naivety and, and, and arrogance, we sort of went, yeah, let's do it. Um, and so that was, so we decided, yeah, so as I was the writer, Alex director, Ernesto cinematographer, and then we would be the three producers on the film. Um, and we kind of went, let's do it. So then we spent nine months um, raising finance, kind of all through uh, last year, 2013. Mm. Uh, we got into pre-production in January, so we got sort of greenlit end of January, beginning of February, and then, yeah, three, four months pre-production, sort of bringing the sort of heads of department together, which, of course, as it always is, it's people that we'd, we'd worked with before, and everyone was kind of... Everyone was just sort of poised and ready with loads of experience, but hadn't got that one big feature credit that they just that we all sort of needed to sort of boost our careers to the next level. So it was great working with people who were so kind of um, passionate and excited to, to to really kind of get stuck into something like a feature film. Um, and as I say, we shot four weeks in June um, in Cornwall, uh, so, which so was it really was a, a really was like a, um, a team that evolved out of itself really and sort of grew its grew its parts as your experience grew. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, um, as I said, it sort of started, I'd say started as just me and Alex, but Ernesto was kind of working on other stuff. And then when that, when us three, we got, got together on that first short film, that's when it kind of started to sort of roll. And, and we got, um, we just got really lucky with the people that we were working with. They were all just so kind of, you know, really, really talented and experienced. But as I say, haven't quite had that, that one um, big sort of break where they can sort of step up and be head of department on a feature film. Do you think this this is a, a, maybe an example of where sort of people finding each other who are kind of maybe at the same level or people who are just above each just above each other in certain levels but all have a kind of shared goal that you find through discussing with each other? Yeah, I think like I mean that's absolutely the key. I mean finding people that not just you know when we were sort of putting the team together, there was we were sort of debating, and this is you know the the, the actors as well, the cast as much as the crew, yeah. but kind of looking at people, and obviously you want to go after the most experienced kind of people and da da. But when you're working on this kind of film where there's you know there's very little money, actually it, it's much better to have people in the same position as you that are just equally as passionate and they and they love the project and they're in it a hundred percent rather than somebody who might potentially feel it's a little bit beneath them and do they need it, but okay, I like you guys, so I'll, I'll help you out. You, mm. you kind of, that's something we didn't want on set, you know, so we, we chose the people very carefully to make sure that they were, you know, at the same level as us and we're all, you know, we're all in it together, basically, because as you well know, when you're on a, you know, a set where, you've, where you haven't got many crew and, and one department kind of something happens, everyone has to chip in. You can't just look after your own department. Everyone has to sort of, you know, hands to deck when... Um, when the shit hits the fan. Of course, of course. And you said that you, you, you spent the, the, the run-up to the summer sort of raising finance. I mean, don't, don't give me fi exact, any figures or anything, but just what, what did you do? Did you go out to the market? Did you, did you crowdfund? You... No, uh, we decided uh, quite early on that we were going to do private investment. Our kind of ethos with this was that um, <clears throat> we were going to make this film no matter what. 
and the train was leaving the station, and I, we, the three of us, we rang everybody that we knew, and literally, and you know, we we talked anybody that asked in the pub, "What are you up to?" We'd say, "We, you know, we'd just be very un-British about it and just say we are looking for money. Do you know anybody who wants to invest in film?" And of course, people kind of laugh and go, "Film? That's very risky." Da da. And of course, it is. But eventually, you know, if you ask enough people, then then you will, you know, you do come across someone who who is sort of willing to go in, and and we created a really great pack, and we and we. Um, the sort of the, the the pack and the deal and the offer that we put on the table, we were very upfront and very honest. Um, you know, when we would meet a potential investor, we would say who were interested, we say, look, if you want to make money on your money, don't invest in us, don't invest in film, go and you know invest in property or something. That's the thing. So if you can't afford to lose the money, don't invest. Um, so we were profiling investors very carefully so that we would get people who were. Um, you know, who are really passionate about film and sort of liked us and were aware of the risks and were aware that, you know, they might not get their, their money back. But as I said, when you, when you balance that with the, the, um, the tax relief scheme, which takes out a lot of the financial risk, it suddenly becomes quite appealing. So, um, yeah, as I said, it took us nine months to find our, um, to find our investors for the, for the film. Which is uh, a bit super quick, really, but that's, and that's hats off to you, I guess. Um, so let's let's rewind to the to the to the core of this film. Then let's yeah. start with the script, as you're the writer. Mm-hmm. What what compelled you as a writer then to to come up with this this fantastical story set in North Cornwall? Um, it was again. It was kind of one of the things we sort of came at it from producers first and foremost, okay. um, because you know that old the old idiom of you know use what you have, not what you want. Mm-hmm. Um, and so again, it was kind of when we decided we were going to make the film. As I said, sitting in this pub hungover on a bank holiday Monday um, we sort of said right we're making the film so what are we going to do and the first thing we said was um, right where are we going to shoot it and I said well listen my, my folks have got a place in Cornwall so we went right we'll shoot there free accommodation you know <laughs> so you kind of go so we decided that was the first decision we're shooting in Cornwall Alex and Ern asked what does it look like and I said well it kind of looks post-apocalyptic so we went great we're going to make a post-apocalyptic film in Cornwall um, I said right what are we going to make it about and Alex said well I've always wanted to make a cannibal movie because, you know, it's a bit like vampires, but it's not vampires, and vampires have been sort of, you know, done to death. So let's make a cannibal film. And then we sort of all decided, great, but we didn't want to make an outright horror. So we, um, we said, well, let's make a love story. So within about five minutes, we decided we were going to make a post-apocalyptic cannibal love story in Cornwall. Um, Sounds it- so easy, Tom. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> but then, of course, we sort of went, oh, God, OK, look, we better do some research into this. So we sort of started as producers and sort of went, look, let's do the research into genre and markets and, you know, if this has been done before and da 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 that kind of stuff. And, yeah. and as we sort of, you know, researched it and sort of developed the story and, um, and you know, and uh, bounced ideas around about what the actual story would be, um, you know, it emerged that it kind of hasn't been, well, hasn't been done, you know, not, not hasn't been done before, but it hasn't been done recently. Um, I mean, there is now there is now a cannibal film or two coming out. Interestingly, um, but yeah, that was the genesis of the idea. Basically, was was essentially Cornwall. And then what happened was, as we were sort of working out the the tone of the story, so we started with influences like Monsters and Let the Right One In. They were two very big influences in terms of the the, the tone and feel of it. Yeah. Um, we then went to Cornwall. So Alex and I had never been to the area of Cornwall um, where we were shooting. So we went down there and we, we went location scouting for sort of three or four days. And then that then massively shaped the story because, I mean, I've been going down there my whole life, but we were discovering locations that, of course, you know, I'd, I'd never seen before. So... Um, was that a case of their fresh, like their fresh eyes on the location, as it were? Yeah, absolutely. And it was just a matter of sort of driving, you know, because I, I only sort of go down there on, on holiday. So, you know, I'm, I'm used to sort of just, you know, going to this bar and that beach and that kind of thing. You don't yeah, sort yeah, of... Yeah 
go, you know, I don't really go off the beaten track too much. <laughs> so we sort of drove around and found all these bizarre, like, I don't know if you've been to Cornwall, but, you know, there are, it just looks post-apocalyptic. You know, some of the buildings are all, you know, these worn down, decrepit buildings. And um, Yeah, I guess, we started, I guess away from the tourist bits, it's, it's, it can yeah. be remote, can't it, I suppose? Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah, like it. It just looks incredible. So we, we sort of would find locations and we said, oh, do you know what would be great if we had this kind of scene here? And so the, as we started to get an idea of the scenes that we wanted and, and obviously with Ernesto, the cinematographer, being there, he was getting an idea of how he wanted to shoot it. And um, so it was very much a, a sort of a half and half between being influenced by the landscape that we were going to shoot in and coming up with ideas for the characters and the, and the story. So I mean, so kind of at that point, then you you've you've not written the script. You're going around saying, right, if that's our location, that's our kind of constraint, one of our big constraints. Let's see how far we can expand it and see what that inspires. And then you come back to London, I guess, to then pen the script based on those conversations. Yeah, it was a kind of it was um, it was a sort of a feedback loop. So it was we we were writing, we were sort of um, bashing out the story at the same time as we were doing these trips to Cornwall. Okay. So um, you know, we started with obviously like a, a synopsis and then a treatment, and just kind of start to get an idea of the story at the same time as we were going to Cornwall. So mm. I'd say it was probably. 50-50, but as you say as well, you know, the financial restraints, you know, knowing that we... And that was what was really nice, actually, because I'd never written a script knowing exactly what the budget was going to be. Right. So it was great kind of knowing, well, we can do this, we can't do that, you know. Um, you know, there was... I remember in the, one of the early drafts, I really, really wanted a dog <laughs> as the writer. Yeah. I was like, we've got to have a dog. It's thematically brilliant. It'll work so well, da da da, da. And then the producer side of my brain just going, yeah, you try and get a dog that's that well trained for like three or four days that's just insanely expensive so um that quickly disappeared in the second draft so you you were living the kind of what was it the, the i think it's william goldman isn't it who said that, you know a writer can say 50 elephants come over the hill and the producer's yeah. thinking where am i going to get 50 elephants from yeah <laughs> oh exactly yeah. and it's quite you know it is it gets a little bit schizophrenic with the, the writers sort of Normally the writer argues with the producer about, you know, what can and can't be done, and, and this time I was both, so... <laughs> yeah, you were flipping so having an argument with myself about So, so once, once that kind of, that land began to level, and you began, you know, you've got that first, that, that sort of first draft that feels producible, and then you begin to improve it. What were, what were the big story challenges for yourself then? Where, where was, where did you have them, I mean, obviously producing versus what you could imagine are obviously going to be... Um, going to hamper your story talents as it were and you're going to have to really be inventive but what yeah. were some of the what were some of the challenges you overcome in the writing process what were the biggest ones for you um i think well there was there was sort of from two different angles so i'd say from the from the writing just purely from the writing angle um the film started out because we knew we were going to make it low budget yeah so we sort of started out with it's just going to be almost a three-hander so the two boys and the girl Mm -hmm. um, and so we had this idea we set on a cave and then we sort of keep it quite contained and all that kind of stuff so that was, that was the first challenge was obviously how do you hook the audience in and keep them you know interested for 90 minutes when you've only got three characters so obviously you look at things like you know Alice Creed and all those kind of films yeah. um, so that was the first one but then it kind of shifted and changed because our other aim with this was to make it look um, on screen, like the highest production value possible. So our aim was to, you know, make it look so much, so much more, um, so much bigger than 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 it actually is. Um, and so we decided quickly that actually we were gonna. It was the second half of the movie is going to be a road movie, and we're gonna, you know, we're gonna go all out because we sort of thought <clears throat> the worst thing you can do with the first feature is to make a vanilla first feature, a very safe kind of film. And we sort of thought, look, 
let's let's try and do something different. Let's go all out. Let's take risks. And you know, it might not work on every level, but at least we're taking those risks and we're trying to push the boundaries of what we of what we can do with what we've got. Um, yeah. And so it was things like you know, I mean, this this all sort of ties into the writing. But it was like we we shot 22 days, 15 different locations, 90 percent of them outside. Um, which you're sort of told you <laughs> that's almost impossible there, to you? do. <laughs> um, you know, you're sort of taught do something a bit more self-contained that you can control the elements. And we were like, no, we're going to shoot outside in Cornwall, you know, where the elements are four seasons in a day. Um, so that was then interesting, transferring that into the writing process and kind of and working out, right, so now we're going for something bigger. Where, how do we keep these, how do we keep it focused on the characters but they're now set within this huge, awesome cinematic landscape. So how do we make the characters big enough that they don't get swallowed by the landscape? So, um, and also the pacing as well. You know, the pacing was a massive thing in the script because we did want to keep it quite self-contained and claustrophobic for the first sort of uh, 35 minutes, 45 minutes of the movie, and then blow it out into this big, big landscape. So that was an interesting sort of um, an interesting discussion. So, so taking that forward then into the into the production and once you've got that script locked as, as locked as you can do I guess while you're being sort of I guess you're always you're, you're, you're going to be constantly being uh, flexible with it mm-hmm. um, what what were the bits in the script that you kept in that mm-hmm. then became something you're kind of most most proud of in terms of you pulled them off because maybe, maybe the the erring on the side of vanilla may have come mm-hmm. in at the, at the last thing but actually you held off and went for that that high risk shot like you say yeah, um, there are a few of those. We sort of, I mean, as anyone who's shot a sort of low-budget film knows, that you you have to pick and choose, you know, where your moments are going to be, where your trailer moments are, where your money shots are, and, and sort of and, and focus. You can't, you know, you can't do everything. You haven't got the money or the time to kind of, you know, to make every shot absolutely awesome, you know. So you have to sort of... Um, have to, yeah, you have to pick the sort of the scenes, and I think the one that we're that we're most proud of is our opening shot. Mm. Um, and I don't want to give I don't want to give too much away, but there is um, the opening shot essentially is, is a wonner, um, and this uh, it's the sort of this guy comes along and, and he finds this guy dying on the um, on the beach. Our main character, um, uh, played by Alfie Stewart, um, and he finds this guy dying and he suffocates him. He kills him. He checks his pockets. So you, you've seen the guy alive. You've seen him moving. Checks his pockets and then he he, he takes his arm, cuts open his arm, and eats what's inside. Um, and this was we decided to do it as a one-er. So how do you, do you mean do it? one so take? See, sorry. Do you mean one take when you say one, one take? No, not one take. Just one shot. So no cut, no edit. Okay, okay. So you've seen the guy alive. You've seen his arms moving, and then within the same shot, no edit, no cut. He then cuts open his arm and eats what's inside. Wow. So how are we gonna? You know, how are we gonna do that? And we sort of went, and it was so funny because um, we, we were shooting on the beach in a little alcove. And we thought it'll take us three hours, you know, about... And, and basically, I mean, you know, I mean, for filmmakers, the way that we did it, obviously, we, we had an amputee actor um, and we attached a prosthetic arm that could move a little bit. Um, and then, you know, sort of... And that was developed or made by, by a, another company. Mm. Um, but, you know, with prosthetics and SFX and that kind of stuff, and it's one shot and it's about, I think it's sort of 70 or 80 seconds, um, you know, to get all the elements to come together is really, really difficult. And we had, we thought it would take three hours. And so six hours in, 
We have one skin left, i.e. for the prosthetic arm. The tide is coming in. I'm freaking out because I know how quickly and dangerous the Cornish tides are. Yeah. We have one skin left. Um, Alex, the director, says, have we got 10 minutes to go for another rehearsal? I say, no, we've got to go for it now because in about five minutes we're going to be underwater. Um, so we, uh, we go for the take and Alex realises as we start the take that the we've got the new skin on but you can see the skins from underneath where we've already done the cuts yeah. so we've already done two or three so he's like well the shot's ruined do you know what I mean we've just spent all this time the shot's ruined the audience are going to it's obvious it's a prosthetic da, 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 da. so we thought well that's it game over but obviously you know carry on rolling um, and Alfie absolute genius he noticed this halfway through the take as he was going so without without missing a beat he noticed it while he carried on acting he managed to shift the arm ever so slightly i mean you can't tell he does it he managed to shift the arm ever so slightly so you can't see it and then as he cuts open the arm he brings the arm up into shot and of course oh. the camera's roaming it's not a you know the camera is just handheld so i have no idea how he, he just he was he's an incredible actor really really professional knows where the camera is at all times and he saved this shot um and we and you know we got it and literally cut got the shot um and then i just went everybody out now and about two minutes later the tide comes in and and sure enough you know we would not we're not quite underwater but we would have all got very wet and the equipment would have got wet and all that kind of stuff so it was it was one of those moments i think it was like on our third or fourth day it was one of those moments when you just kind of go everyone just pulled it out on the you know out of the bag just in one shot everyone needed to perform and it was absolutely perfect and i have no idea how i mean well i do everyone was just brilliant but um that i think is the it was the moment when we all sort of went, you know, we're going to get this film. This is going to be all right. Everyone's bloody talented here. So, um, yeah, but it was uh, a bit hairy for a few minutes there. <laughs> if you don't already subscribe to Britflix, just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. What was your experience like shooting in Cornwall? Is that a place, did you have to get lots of permissions or was you very much on the run, as it were, making the movie? No, we decided to do everything by the book. Um, so we wanted to do uh, everything above board, um, make sure everyone knew. And I've got to say, anyone who's thinking of shooting in Cornwall, do it. Um, they are the absolute nicest people on the planet. Mm -hmm. um, it helped that I had a few connections, but I certainly didn't know all the local farmers whose land we were shooting on. And we would, you know, on the reccees, we'd just sort of go up and talk to them and say, you know, we're, we're thinking of shooting here and da-da-da. And, um, and they were all like, yeah, no, brilliant, absolutely fantastic. You know, can I help you out? What can I do? Do you want a sandwich, a cup of tea? They literally, it's completely the opposite of shooting in London, where <laughs> someone goes, can we shoot on your land? And they go, yeah, you know, what am I, how much money am I going to get for it? What disruption is it going to cause? They're just the opposite. They just want to help. Um, and we couldn't, we really, I have to stress this enough, we could not have done it without the, the help of the whole Cornish community. Everybody down there just really, at every turn, just, you know, helped in any way possible. Did you have to deal with any of the local authorities or anything to get, like, formal shooting? Yeah, yeah, we, we were shooting, um, uh, one of the beaches we, we shot on um, for a little bit was, was council, so we did have to speak to the council. And again, they were brilliant as well, you know, they really helped us out, they, you know, they got back to us, um, you know, for a council very, very quickly. Um, they were really, really communicative. And um, but that was it. There was just one, two locations that were council owned. There was another. We shot in a studio as well. We built a studio in an industrial warehouse. Yeah. So you've told us about sort of the making of, uh, sorry, the, the writing of, and the wrecking of, and the kind of all those, all those constraints you placed on yourself to make sure you could stay within a budget that was affordable, but also ambitious enough to make the film interesting. 
mm-hmm. and right now you're in the process, you're, you're, you're post-shoot. Um, so what, what have you, what have, what's been happening with the film as producers now? What, who, who are you talking to? I mean, obviously you're, make, you're doing the post-production, but yeah. I'm guessing distribution and sales is, mm-hmm. um, is, a, is key to the next steps for yourselves. Or, is it, or, or indeed are you looking at festivals? Is that the way you're seeing the, the, next, the next part? Yeah, it's interesting. It's a bit of both. I mean, the what we've kind of said is that because we because the three of us have never shot a feature film before, mm-hmm. um, we've actually only ever been able to see half the yard in front of ourselves. Okay. <laughs> so, like, you know, when we sat down and went, and this sort of ties in, when we sort of sat down and went, we're going to raise money for a film. Uh, you know, I, I'd never raised money. I'd never set up a business before. I didn't know how to go about raising money for a business. None of us did, really. We just sort of had an inkling. So um, we've sort of... All we did was basically talk to as many people as possible, get advice from everybody about every single stage of the every single stage of the journey, and sort of figure it out. And obviously, it's not you know filmmaking isn't rocket science. It's just it's just a lot of hard work, and you've just got to cover yourself from every angle. And that's mm-hmm. where talking to people comes in. And so now we obviously we started thinking about distribution, sales, and festivals, and all that sort of stuff. You know, when we came up with the idea, and and was it a marketable idea? But because the market shifts so much, you know, and that was a, over a year ago, um, there wasn't much point in doing too much research. You know, we sort of do our initial stuff. So now, as you say, yeah, we're, we're doing that. We, we went to Cannes in May and we started talking. We talked to about 20, 25 different sales agents and had meetings with them. And we're sort of as much sort of getting advice off them as well as, as much as pitching the project. Because obviously we were, it was before we shot the film. There's no above the line talent. Um, so they're never, we're never going to get a pre-sale um, because we're, we're unknown filmmakers with no, you know, with no real known actors. Yeah. Um, so we're sort of getting advice from these guys really as much as anything. Um, and that really helped. And so now we are touching, starting to touch base with these guys again. Um, can, can I ask uh, you then, Tom, what was, what was yeah. what's some of the best advice you got then? Because obviously for a lot of people it would feel like you've got to go to them to do business with them, but it sounds like you're able to have a conversation with them as much as potentially do business with them. What kind of advice were you able to glean? Um, it was interesting, actually. I mean, it was kind of... I mean, from a distribution and sales point of view, the, the advice that we were getting was actually, obviously, they weren't really giving advice on the production itself. Yeah. They were just giving advice on, on you know, on thinking about, you know, the, the marketability of the idea, and that's something that we hear so much, but, you know, in terms of the, the very concept, the hook, you know, can you... Can you pitch it to someone in 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 five words? You know, can you? And we, you know, and of course, our one is it's a post-apocalyptic cannibal love story. Mm-hmm. And you go, and then that that was our that was how we started the pitch basically. Um, and so they kind of they liked that, and that was their big advice was to because obviously they're coming at it from a um, from a, from a sort of a sales point of view. And actually, the thing that I learned the most that was interesting is that these people we sort of I had this idea that these are, these people are just business men and women. Um, you know, and they're just looking. They're just sort of very cold, and they're looking at it as a product. And they are looking at it as a product because it is. But they're also very creative, and they like to, you know, and they do want, or most of them want to have a kind of a creative hand, um, not necessarily in the actual production, but in terms of the way that they will sell the film, the way that they will market it, and the posters and the trailer, and you know, that's that is all very in a creative, um, creative medium. So that was what surprised me was that it was just kind of getting into these people's shoes and, yeah. and working out what do they want from the film. Because what they want from the film is very different to what the cast and crew want from the film and what the investors want from the film. So it's kind of, um, I think that's the thing that I've learned from them the most is, is, is working out um, what their values are, what their business values are. Given you met with them before you went to production, did they have an influence on the, on the end production? Um, no. No, they, I'm trying to think if we've met anybody that kind of, 
No, not really. I mean, they just, <laughs> it sounds really stupid, but they, they all stress the, uh, the importance of, um, of making a good film. That was their main advice. Make a good film. Um, <laughs> sounds like Cameron's advice, well, doesn't yeah, it, to make, okay. make successful films. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it was actually, I mean, that's another thing we learned, is that nobody really knows anything. Um, and everyone has their own opinion of the best way to sell a film or the best way to market a film um, and what will sell a film. You know, some people say the only way you can sell a film is you have to have above-the-line talent. So you have to have at least one known actor in it or you have to have the director needs to be known or something. And then other people are like, actually, do you know what? At this level, it doesn't matter. If you make a breakout festival film, it'll sell. Other people are like, the festivals don't matter. No one cares about the festivals in the sales world. But if you make a great film that's marketable and is commercial, even without good actors, then you'll sell it. So everyone has a completely different opinion of um, of what are the most important aspects of a film in order to sell it, um, and I think you know no one actually really knows, which is you know which is fine and, and, and exciting, and so it means that you sort of have to not figure it out yourself, but um, explore every avenue. And so, so in essence, so have you been have you been looking at the sort of calendar for horror and fantasy festivals then going forward from the point where you see where you'll finish? post-producing the movie yeah we've just we've started to kind of talk to people about um well when we got back we started we've been speaking to loads and loads of filmmakers who have um who have gone through this process um already mm -hmm. um all from you know both sales distribution and festivals and so we're starting to put together a festival strategy but the problem with that we found with the festival strategy is that having never done it before <coughs> festivals obviously work in a way whereby <coughs> sorry excuse me um, the, 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 the programmers or the people that choose the films, often they'll work on more than one festival. So they'll be choosing the films for sort of three or four festivals. Uh -huh. So if you send your film to this person to one festival, they might look at it and go, yeah, it's not right for this festival, but actually it's going to be right for this other festival, which I'm also the programmer for. Okay. Um, and it's, that's the key is working out all those little internal intricacies about who works on which one and da-da-da-da. And speaking to filmmakers, what they say is, you know, if you get into one festival, then festivals obviously have close relationships with other festivals based on the people that run them. And so it's, if you can sort of, and you figure this out as you go along, apparently, but um, the more you can know about which festivals link with other festivals, um, the, the better you're doing. But obviously that's very much, you know, inside info. You only really know it from people who work there. So we're trying at the moment to figure that out um, and trying to meet the right people who have this information, um, which... Is not is not impossible. It's just it's just tricky. No, no, it's an absolute. Yeah. Uh, well, it's 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 it's, a, it's opaque, isn't it? To say the mm. least, if you've never done it before. I mean, I was yeah. I was at the New Orleans Horror Film Festival last week, which is a small festival in New Orleans, and they had they were going to be showing White Settlers, the film with Colin um, McIntosh in, which right. I think the Grimfest lot, the Manchester Horror Festival, are behind, mm. and they'd selected it and. During the process, during the run-up to that festival, a bigger festival in LA mm. wanted to show the film, but wanted also the premiere rights as well, and didn't want another festival to have shown it before them. And so yeah. then you get, and then there's the politics that uh, that was something I'd never heard of before, which is yeah. the kind of politics of it. And I mean, obviously, certainly in Britain, you've got for for the horror genre, you've got Fright Fest, mm. and then everything else because everything else is sort of a smaller festival than Fright Fest. So yeah, it's yeah, it's just like I mean that's the other thing. As you say, it's like the premieres. It's, I mean, they all have their they all have their slightly different, um, you know, the things they look for, and some of them 
don't care if you've done a premiere and some do care and it's I mean and you know god I mean we don't know this yet so we're still, <laughs> still trying to figure it all out but then of course there's the whole self-distribution route as well which we're also looking into so yeah we we are really we're exploring every single avenue open to us to work out because I mean I think the thing with distribution and sales is that everyone just kind of thinks oh I just need to sell my film mm-hmm. um and there's um you know, a lot of filmmakers, this is why, there's, there's all sorts of horror stories, you know, about filmmakers being screwed over by, by sales agents and distributors. And um, I think the reason that these sort of stories come about, I don't know if, they, you know, there might be truth to them, there might not be, I don't know. But a lot of filmmakers kind of go, they just want to make films, which is, that's natural. So they make their film, and then they finish it, and they go, right, I want to make the next one. So they just hand it over to somebody um, and say, sell my film, and I'm going to go make the next one. Um, and that's what these people are there for. They are, you know, they're the, they're the experts in selling movies worldwide. But that allows them, they're, they're, they're approaching these deals as, as, as filmmakers, as creatives, as opposed to as business, business people. So mm. it allows them to kind of, you know, to be taken advantage of, really. Um, and I think for us, we're like, we, our aim with this is, we have, you know, we have two aims, which, is, which should be the same for any, any movie, which is, well, I say three, actually, probably. Make a, you know, make a really, um, make a showcase piece, so make a damn good film, that stands up as a calling card for everybody involved, every department. That's the first one. Get it out to as many people as possible, so as many people see it both within the industry and um, you know average cinema goes, mm. and also make as much money on it as possible, obviously. Um, and the thing is, is working out right what's the best route to go because actually, the sales agent distributor traditional model might not be the one that A gets us the most money and B gets us the widest reach, or it might get us the widest reach but not much money, or you know. So it's, and then you sort of look at self distribution and go, well, we could, if we do it right, we might be able to get it out on VOD or on new, new, some new platform. We might be able to get it seen by a million people, but not the right people, not by anyone in the industry. So we get it seen by a million people, you know, your average cinema goer. Okay, well. And so it's all these sort of things that we're, we're exploring at the moment. And as I said, we can only see half a yard in front. So we are just, you know, speaking to as many people as speaking to as many people as possible about getting advice on on all of this. And I think I think it refl- I think your 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 thoughts and the the idea of the options reflects the state of fluxes that the, the film industry is in. Because yeah. traditionally, you would want to just make sure the people that sell films and distribute films have the film to sell and distribute. Mm-hmm. Whereas now that's not necessarily the go-to model anymore. I mean, it's, it's a good model for a lot of films, but it's not the only model anymore. No, exactly. And, that, and you've just got to work out what's right for your film. Um, and, you know, at the moment, we're still exploring that. We had our first um, industry test screening a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And it's that, you know, until you, until you start showing it to people, because like, we, we feel that we've got the film we set out to make. Yeah. Um, so we think we've got a good film. Um, but we have absolutely no idea because we're so, you know, obviously you're so close to it. How do you, how do you have any idea whether whether it's a good film or not? So we might have, we might have got the film we wanted to make. Whether it's good or not is another thing. So, um, you know, until we start getting that feedback um, from industry people and going, yeah, do you know what this would, um, you know, this this is great. This would definitely hold up in the cinema. Da 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 da. You know, or they're going, actually, do you know what this is? This could be great on TV or this could be great on. But you know, until you start doing that, you don't. You don't really. As, as, um, as for, the, for the layperson listening, what, what do you, with a test screening? Are you mm. just literally showing it people and talking to them, or are you giving them questionnaires to fill in? Um, yeah, we did it. The first one we did was just industry people only, and the reason for that is um, 
So the film was third cut, um, obviously no grade, and the sound design hadn't started or the sound mixing or editing. So, you know, for if, if we brought in your average cinema goer who who doesn't understand the whole concept of of you know of creating a, the sound design, yeah. they would be so distracted by it they just wouldn't be able to you know they they just go oh my god you've you've fucked up the sound didn't you? <laughs> We'd be like well, we haven't started on it. So yeah, we started with industry people who are used to seeing early cuts, and um, we had about ten people, and we just talked to them afterwards. Gave them questionnaires if they wanted to be um, anonymous, um, but most of them were quite happy just to kind of chat to us and give us their thoughts and you know and sort of tell us where we've you know it's I mean the big thing is is um, you know the story does the are there bits in the story that um, that that are making sense is everything clear you know all the relationships clear you know and it sounds really kind of you know silly but. Um, I think it was I think it was Chris Jones who who told me a story about one a film I don't know whether he it was his film or or a film that he watched where there was some sort of supporting characters and everyone afterwards or about half the audience went it was really weird when that brother and sister started kissing and he was like what <laughs> and it turned out that they're not brother and sister but for some reason everyone thought they were brother and sister <laughs> but uh, they weren't at all so he was like oh my god we just and it was like down to one little shot that um, had just everyone had assumed that they were brother and sister, so they just obviously re-edited it to make sure that it was clear that they are not brother and sister. Um, so stuff like that, there was a few little things like that that gets pointed out. Sorry, that was a bit of a long answer. No, no, no. So that's, that's really <laughs> interesting. That, that, you know, I mean, that's... Because, you know, you're, you're making the film, and like you said, if you're only seeing half a yard in front of yourselves all the time, mm. then you're always going to be stuck between the kind of wanting to do the best job, but also thinking, we've done that bit, so we can move on. And, and obviously, bringing in those, those ten people to view it, I'm guessing... Were able to let you see, you know, further than the nose in front of your face. They could see a bigger picture that you're not you're not able to see with a film you're that close to. So they can give opinions that mm. you're never going to have of it. I suppose. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and the key with you know, if you are going to do test screenings, the first thing I'll say is yeah, definitely do industry people first and get them in when you've got a cut that you're happy with. So probably not on first cut. Mm. Wait until you've got something you're really happy. But we chose people who are industry people first, friends second. So we'd met them through the industry. So we knew that they were going to be brutally honest and that they weren't going to feel bad if they didn't like the film and they were, you know. So, um, and that's the key thing is, yeah, getting honest, you know, honest feedback. And so we're going to do, we'll probably do another one of those. And then we'll, and then once we've got enough industry and we feel like we sort of, um, we can move on to kind of the sound design and we've got picture lock, then we'll start to bring in, you know, um, average, you know, you sort of the, 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 sort of the public as it were, um, and get their opinion because then their opinion is completely different as well. Um, and and at the end of the day, you know, we're not selling it to people in the industry. They're not the bums on seats. You know, we're going to be selling it to your average cinema goer. So, you know, that is our audience, and we need to we need to listen to them all through the process. So we'll probably do a t- couple of bigger test screenings to them. So, what's your um, projected timeline? You know, if all goes to plan, what's your yep. projected timeline to have it all finished in post production? Then, what's your um, fingers crossed if everything goes according to plan, which, um, as everyone knows in post, it never does. But um, we would hope to have a final, a final pre-grade cut uh, this side of Christmas. So have everything done except for the grade, um, which would means then we can start kind of think about film festivals and then do the grade in January and get that done by the end of January. So. Excellent, excellent. Well, look, well, um, we on Britflix would love to keep our support going for your movie, and um, maybe, yeah, thank maybe you. when yeah. you. When you know more about releases or schedule, I'm sorry, or, or, or festival premieres, mm-hmm. maybe get the director on to come and talk to us about the movie. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, he, no, he'd, um, yeah, he can certainly talk more about all the uh, all the creative creative decisions that we made on um, 
on set. There was lots of lots of changes on set, as there always is. <laughs> now, now a question I like to ask everybody, and I've, I've forgotten to sort of um, sort of pre-warn you. It's not it's not a massively difficult question. It's just that <laughs> most people are going to go. Um, um, oh, it's not, it's just it because we're Britflix, and yep. one of the main things we do is 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 obviously oh, the main thing we do is about supporting British filmmakers. Mm-hmm. Um, we like to get the people coming on to recommend us a British mm-hmm. film that they think is maybe um, undervalued if it's a classic film or mm-hmm. s- didn't get seen by enough people if it's a recent film that mm-hmm. the, the filmmaker feels deserves a bit more attention. Yeah, I mean, the, the films that automatically spring to mind are Andrea Arnold's films. So she did, what was it, Red Road, Fish Tank, and then Wuthering Heights, which they got, they garnered so much attention within the industry and they are all, she's just an impeccable storyteller and filmmaker. Um, but, you know, you ask anybody who's not a, a cinephile and they've never heard of them. Um, and they are incredible films. And when I have shown them to people who are not cinephiles and, and, you know, and sort of only go to the cinema once a month, once every two months, they've loved them. And they're fantastic films. <clears throat> um, so I think she, as much as she's getting loads of attention within the industry and is very highly acclaimed, I'd love to see her, I'd love to see her films reach, reaching a, a, a wider audience, definitely. Well, there's every chance now. Fish Tanks appeared on Netflix now. I saw that, yeah. I noticed that. Which was a pleasant um, surprise. I, mean, I must admit, I saw that at the cinema. Yeah, I saw it. It was on, um, it's on Sky Movies, not Sky Movies, but Sky Store, whatever they call it as well. So it's starting, it's starting to happen. But, um, yeah, it, they're, they're difficult films to position in the market, though, I think. Well, I think this is something that, I mean, I was, for the listeners' benefit, I was talking to Tom about being on some panel early mm. at the end of last week, and... We were talking about British film industry, and we sort of decided that there were two different elements. There is, there is the tax incentive for Warner Brothers and the likes to come and shoot Tarzan and Star Wars and whatever in this country, but there's also the idea of cinema that reflects a British culture or a British want to tell stories and how we tell stories that has a distinct British identity. And I guess Andrew Arnold's stuff falls into that bracket where... It is. It is something that's, just, that's 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 absolutely British in its in, it, in its you know in when it's been done. As it when yeah. you watch it, you get a sense of that. Whereas you compare that to a you know some big Marvel film, and they seem like they're from different worlds, quite literally. Yeah. No, you're right. Yeah, it's. <clears throat> she certainly has it. I mean, they are just British to the absolute core. And I actually I don't know what the figures are like um, outside the UK. Whether you know whether it's sold at all outside the UK, whether it's sold well, I'm not sure. Um, but I, I would imagine our films, maybe not Wuthering Heights, but certainly sort of Fish Tank, that would, I'd imagine that maybe struggled internationally other than at, other than at festivals, I'm sure. I, know, yeah, I, know I, mean, well I imagine like, like Mike Lee and Ken Loach, it sort of gets, <laughs> it's, I imagine she's got, there's, there's the, sorry, there's the, there's the, the fandom in France. <laughs> yeah. Um, mm. But they're, they're beyond <laughs> there, because they're, cine, because they're cinephiles, but beyond that, I don't know. Yeah, on myself to be honest with you. I mean, I think it's it's really interesting because I because I love Andrea Arnold films, I absolutely do. And um, but you know, when we sort of started this journey, we decided that we were going to make the opposite of of an Andrea Arnold film. You know, because we we could have went we sort of went well, we we're shooting in you know we're shooting in, in Britain, we're shooting in Cornwall, da da da. We we could make you know what would be a, a British film, but actually we didn't want to make a British film if this makes sense. We wanted to make an international movie. So we wanted to make something that kind of was had as much chance as possible of moving outside of the 
of moving outside the UK and make it look kind of grand and and cinematic and all that kind of stuff. And that was just a, that was that was purely a kind of both a creative and a, and a business decision. And you know, we're not saying that's that's right because these you know the British films like Andrew Arnold have such an important place um, in the market and in, and in the development of the film industry. Um, but as I said, yeah, we just sort of we love those films, but we we decided to go. A, Started to try and go a different way. Whether or not it's come off, we'll have to see. We hope it has. Does that mean? I mean, I'm interested. Does that mean you were very conscious about having very little dialogue, for example? Because obviously, the less dialogue you have, that relies on understanding English. Yeah, ish. Yeah, I mean, we wanted as little dialogue as possible, just actually purely from a creative kind of point of view. Um, um, you know, I think most most films have too much dialogue in. Um, so we and when you're shooting somewhere like Cornwall and it's outside and it's just you just kind of want to focus on the visuals. And also, I come from an acting an acting background, so I'm always of the opinion that you know the less dialogue you have, the more the more you give the actors to do. Yeah. The more challenging the role is, the more likely you are to get um, you know really really talented actors who really really want the role. Um, so that was all kind of tied into that. Um, yeah. Okay, well, look, well, thank you very much, Tom, for taking time to come on the podcast. No worries, thank you for having me. And good luck with the rest of the post-production process. Thank you, yeah, we'll keep you in the loop. We'll let you know, uh, let you know how it comes along. It's the podcast. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.